we're working on getting to the end. Genesis 50. One more week after this, I think we'll be finished with Genesis. <clears throat> this morning we're going to look at verses 15 to 21. Genesis 50, 15 to 21. <clears throat> For the last several weeks, we've been uh, considering the last days and the last words of the patriarch uh, Jacob. And then last Sunday, we uh, studied the portion where he died and was buried, carried back home to uh, Canaan. So what happens next? <clears throat> well, what normally happens when the family patriarch dies? <laughs> Suddenly, all the old tensions between the kids all come to the surface again, right? And that's kind of what happens here. Suddenly, things that we thought were long forgotten uh, arise again and uh, have to be dealt with and, uh, in Jacob's family. So let's read this account, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And so they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. <clears throat> I think there are two lessons that we ought to learn from this passage. One from the behavior of the brothers and the other from the behavior of Joseph. <clears throat> the first lesson is this, that sin haunts the guilty. Sin haunts the guilty. You know, the prevailing attitude towards sin these days is that naughty is nice. Sin is not considered something evil which needs to be feared and avoided at all costs. No, sin is only forbidden fruit that is more desirable. And consequently, things which were once considered sin are now casually flirted with and uh, intentionally indulged, not avoided at all. But such, a think such thinking is a big lie because sin will prove to be more bitter than you ever imagined. Indeed, sin haunts the guilty. And that's what we see here, I think, with Joseph's brothers. Of course, by now you know something about their sin. They hated their younger brother, Joseph, almost from the beginning. They plotted to kill him, finally, and uh, threw him in a pit for, self, for safekeeping while they casually ate lunch to his cries for mercy. And then seeing the opportunity for financial gain, as a caravan came along, they said, 
Why kill him? We can make money. And they sold him as a slave to be carted off to Egypt, never to be seen again. Watched as their 17-year-old little brother was taken as a slave by strangers. But it didn't end there, for his absence demanded some explanation to their father, so they fabricated a lie. They took his coat, killed an animal, got it all bloody, and took it to their father and said, we don't know what happened. An animal must have eaten him. And for the next 20 years, they maintained their conspiracy of silence and watched as their father grieved bitterly for his favorite son. But as we've seen, the story didn't end there. Because a great famine came, they were forced to go down to Egypt to buy food. And in Egypt, unbeknown to them at first, they encountered Joseph, now all grown up and in charge. But when it became known that uh, Joseph was Joseph, he did not just destroy his brothers as uh, they might have expected now that he was in control. No, we learned back in chapter 45 that he actually forgave them and invited them to bring their father and come to Egypt, and he provided land for them and food for them. And so for 17 years, they've been living somewhat as a big happy family in Egypt in harmony and in plenty. But now Jacob, the father, died. And suddenly these brothers are filled with fear. You can see it there in verse 15. What if Joseph, still holds a grudge and pays us back now for all the wrong we did. That had been their concern in the beginning. The minute they found out Joseph was Joseph, they were terrified at what he might do to them. And now it's 39 years since their crime, their sin against their brother. It's 17 years since he forgave them. And they're still gripped with fear. For you see, sin haunts you. So they send messengers at first to Joseph. These messengers bring this letter, supposed letter from Joseph's father Jacob saying please be merciful to these your brothers most Bible scholars think that letter was a fabrication but we don't know that but then the brothers appear in person verse 18 and they come and they throw themselves at at Joseph's feet saying we are your slaves Now this is a really interesting scene because you remember when Joseph was a boy and he had these dreams and he said, I saw all of you bowing down to me. And they hated him for that. It's exactly this scene that made them hate him so bad they wanted to kill him. What irony that they would now readily trade their freedom, readily become his slaves for life to save their skin. But that's what sin does. It reduces us to slavery, doesn't it? That's what happened in the story of the prodigal son that Jesus told. 
When he left home scorning his father, it's a pocket full of money, he was full of himself. But when he was reduced to feeding pigs and wished he had such as good food as the pigs had, he came to his senses. And what did he say? He said, this is nuts. My father has servants who live better than this. I'm not qualified to be a son anymore. I'm going to go back and ask him if he'll hire me as a servant. That's a picture of truth. Repentance is not glibly saying, okay, God, I'm tired of this sin, now you can forgive me. No, that's not repentance. Repentance is casting yourself on his mercy, understanding that for him to even let you be his slave would be gracious. So you can't easily get rid of sin and its effects. It haunts the guilty. Now, now, I make a point of this, folks, though this isn't the major thrust of the text. I make a point of this because the whole world says this isn't true. Well, some of you older people know how true it is. Some of you live with the scars of your past every day. But you young people, I plead with you to listen to this. The sin which seems so easy right now will prove to haunt you for years. The thrill of a little shoplifting spree will still have you looking over your shoulder every time you walk into that store ten years later. The pain of sex that you just couldn't resist will poison your marriage and make you hate yourself as you look in the mirror every morning to shave. The abortion that seems to be the easy way out of a really bad situation. You will never forget that child. 30 years from now, when you see someone the same age, you'll go, oh, I had a child. Sin is not a game. It will haunt you mercilessly. God's way of obedience sometimes looks so hard, but the Proverbs is true when it says it's the way of the transgressor that's hard, not the obedient. If you don't believe it, look at Joseph's brothers, grown men, grandfathers, trembling in fear, faces in the dirt, begging that they could just be slaves. Because of the weight of the guilt. Sin haunts the guilty to death. Oh, but against that bitter picture, in the second part of this passage, God holds before us the beauty of his grace. Which brings us to the second point, that God's grace conquers evil. God's grace conquers evil. You know, there's so many times in life where we just find it so true that a picture is worth a thousand words. You know, you can give me a whole page of directions to somewhere, but if you just show me the map, I can find it. 
Or you can give pages and pages of, of, uh, uh, of uh, to explain how things fit together, of, uh, instructions, but if you just draw a little diagram, we'll have it in a minute. Don't you wish the Bible had pictures? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great, all these hard theological concepts, these abstract things? You've got to just draw us little pictures and we can see. It'd be so much easier. But, but you know, in a sense, God does give us pictures. As we've studied this section on Joseph in the last part of Genesis, again and again we've seen how Joseph's life was a picture, a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of Christ's work to come. And it's never more true than here. But here we also see Joseph illustrating for us something of the Christian life that we're called to live. Showing that life in Christ is not just receiving grace, but it's living in grace. Here God draws us a picture of what it looks like that when his grace conquers evil. I'm indebted to Derek Kidner uh, in his little book on Genesis for pointing uh, some of this out to me. Uh, this is a little tiny book this big, and he has one section about this big, about three or four sentences on this passage, and yet he just goes right to the heart of it, and I'm really deeply grateful, uh, indebted to him for that. Let me, let me read this second section again. <clears throat> Joseph's brothers come and throw themselves before him, we're your slaves, and then verse 19, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? You intend to harm me, but you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. So what does it look like that God's grace conquers evil? Well, here we have three parts in this picture of Joseph's behavior. The first is, it means no retaliation. No retaliation. Joseph graciously leaves the righting of wrongs in God's hands. That's what's going on in verse 19, when Joseph says, am I in the place of God? Now, that's kind of a confusing statement, it baffles people, and there's a lot of discussion about what he means by that. But I think when we go to the New Testament and we read how God instructs us and what it means to live out his grace in the face of evil, what do we find there? Well, the Apostle Paul sums it up for us in Romans 12. He says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. And he says a similar thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Isn't that exactly what Joseph is saying? They're bowing before him, saying, we're your slaves, we're your slaves, and humbling themselves. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I God? I'm not God. I don't have to settle those scores with you. That's his business. I'm not in the place of God. I'm not the judge. This isn't judgment day. No revenge. Joseph draws us here a little picture of grace conquering evil as he refuses to mete out vengeance as they expected him to do. Oh, but this isn't easy. I had a long telephone conversation with an old friend this week who struggled to learn this lesson. No grudges, no vindictive spirit, no revenge, no matter 
what the wound. Well, make no mistake, it's easy to say, but it's not easy to do. That means you absorb blows and you don't return. It means that you feel the sting of curses thrown at you and return word, words of kindness. It means being thanklessly used and returning loving service bathed in prayer. That doesn't come easy for us. But that's what it looks like as God's grace conquers evil. Maybe not what we thought, but it's certainly what we find in the Savior, and it's what Joseph models for us here. Oh, but that's just the beginning. What does it look like when God's grace conquers evil? We'll look at the second picture, which Joseph lives out before us. Secondly, it means trusting God's goodness even in the face of wickedness. Trusting God's goodness even in the face of wickedness. Here Joseph acknowledges that God's hand of providence is working even through the most malicious, wicked, evil acts of men. That's the point of verse 20, which is one of the most profound verses in the whole Bible. If you've never memorized it, do it this afternoon. You intended to harm me, it says, but God intended it for good. Joseph is under no false illusion that his brothers didn't really mean it, that their motives were somehow pure. He knew that they meant to harm him. He knew that they were motivated by hateful, malicious, evil hearts. They did not care one bit about him, and he knew it. He's not whitewashing their sin at all. But you see, what he understands is that God's grace is even greater than their wickedness. They could set themselves against the Lord, but they could not stop God's plan. For whatever actions one might take against the Lord, you only play into his hands because he's in control. And over the years, as Joseph sat in prison and then rose to power and saw God's hand in it all, he had come to realize his bro wicked brothers weren't the ones who sent him to Egypt, though they certainly did in their wickedness. But he, they're not the ones that are calling the shots here. God had sent him to Egypt. God was in control of, in all of this. And God is good, not evil. He's full of grace. As one writer said so pointedly, even where no man could imagine it, God held all the strings in his hands. And what's God doing? Well, he's preserving his covenant people, just like he promised. But he's not just being compassionate to his children, he's preserving the promised line of descent from whom the Savior would come to unfold grace to the whole world someday. For it was from this family, from the line of Judah, that the Savior would be born. Oh, Judah didn't know about that. He didn't care a thing about that. He was busy trying to get rid of his brother when he sold him to Egypt. But God was unfolding his plan to save his people, using even Judah's wickedness and the brother's wickedness to bring about grace that would triumph over all sin. And when Jesus comes, we see even a greater example of it. Also, Peter explains it on the day of Pentecost. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, nailed him to a cross. 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was not possible that death could keep its hold on him. See, Peter's saying, you guys are guilty for crucifying Jesus. But your actions did not stop his work. For he was handed over to you according to God's plan. And though you were wicked in, your, in, your, uh, in, your, in putting him to death, he died exactly on schedule according to God's plan. You can't thwart God's plan to save. God's good, gracious providence works even in spite of and through all of your wickedness. And now we're called to live consistent with that truth that God's grace conquers evil. You meant it for evil, Joseph said. God meant it for good, and that's what matters to me. Or as the New Testament counterpart says in Romans 8, 28, we know that all thing, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God's goodness cannot be threatened by man's evil. You know, there's a wonderfully profound example of this being played out in our country right now that you may or may not know about. You've heard me speak uh, previously about Lisa Beamer. Lisa Beamer is the young woman whose husband Scott was on United Flight 93 when it plunged into the countryside in uh, Pennsylvania on September 11th. He's the one whose last words were, let's roll. He left her a widow, she's in her early 30s, he left her a widow with a young son and pregnant with another child. But this woman knows the grace of God and is turning her personal tragedy into an opportunity to show forth the grace of God to all the other people who are hurting in that tragedy. You really ought to read about her. She's an interesting person. But what I want to mention today is just one thing that I read in the interview with her. Since September 11th, when that happened, when her husband died, every time this woman signs her name, here's how she signs it. Lisa Beamer, and underneath, Genesis 50, 30, or 20, 50. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Grace conquers evil to this day. But one more picture from the life of Joseph. A picture of God's grace conquering evil. Thirdly, what that means for us is it means repaying good for evil returning good for evil. Here Joseph repays his brothers not only with forgiveness, but with practical affection, acts of love. See it there in verse 21? So then don't be afraid. <clears throat> I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph did not just leave his brother's punishment in God's hands, saying, I'm not God, let God handle this. No, he forgave them. 
But he didn't just forgive them, wiping the slate clean, not holding it against them. He then lavished upon them everything they needed. He calmed their fears. Don't be afraid. He provided for their families. He spoke kindly to them. He reassured them. Boy, is this not a picture of God's grace that's extended to us? Isn't that exactly what the apostle says in Romans 8? What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things. God lavishes grace on us instead of evil that we deserve. Well, this is our only hope when the guilt of the past haunts us. What do we do? How can you wipe that out of your memory? How can you get rid of that? You can't get rid of that. God alone forgives. And what do we do when it haunts us? We can only go back again and again into the infinite grace of God. And, and here, yes, these promises are real. Yes, there's hope. Yes, we can rest secure in Christ. Yes, we, here we are reassured that God speaks kindly to us, that Jesus is true and he's enough, and his sacrifice is sufficient for our sin. In Christ, God has conquered our sin. We just keep going back. God lavishes. Mercy, mercy, grace, reassurance, peace, grace upon grace. This grace isn't just something we receive, though, folks. This is how we live. And what does it look like? Draw us a picture. Well, it looks like Joseph and his brothers. Joseph lavishing good things on and speaking kindly to these once murderous, hateful brothers. That sounds radical, doesn't it? And it is. But God's grace is radical, you see. And any lesser kind of religion is not the Christian faith. It's not the grace of God in Christ, just going through the motions. No, God's grace conquers evil. What a contrast is set before us in this little passage. On the one hand, we have the power of sin, power to enslave and to haunt the guilty. Certainly, this is the story of the world around us. People in bondage, bound by invisible chains all the time, which they can't break. An uh, uh, unrelenting guilt drives people to despair, de gets them depressed and, and hopeless and suicidal. The things which were advertised to bring joy and freedom bring bondage and sadness. It was all a big lie. And sin haunts the guilty. But in contrast to that bleak scene, here's God's grace displayed. Grace which overcomes the worst evil in the world. For there's here, the, here there's hope for sinners because this is all pointing us to the coming of Jesus, who, who's the realization of all these things. And what does that triumphant grace look like as it's lived out in, in, in people's lives? Well, it, it looks like no retaliation, leaving the right of, righting of wrongs in God's hands. It looks like trusting God's goodness even 
when it looks like evil's prevailing. God's providence is not uh, suddenly inoperative. And it means repaying good instead of evil, because that's the way God has dealt with us. Grace conquering evil. It's what we receive, and it's how we live in Christ. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray that as we think about it now, as the seed of it has been planted in our hearts and minds, I pray that you would grow it, may it find a fertile soil, and put its roots down deep and change our ways, and change our thinking, and deliver us from the sin and grow us in righteousness and grace till our lives are uh, examples, pictures of the same grace that uh, Joseph's life pictured. Oh, Lord, only you could do that, for it's all foreign to us. But we know that this is exactly what you intend to do, so we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's close by singing another hymn, number 689, a great hymn about uh, trusting God in the midst of uh, all kinds of situations. 689, let's stand and sing.
God's benediction. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. You are dismissed.